Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights at 7 p.m. in the SCG Church Warehouse for our young adult service, or at our main campus services. We hope you enjoy. Amen. All right, you guys may be seated. Well, welcome to Young Adults, and if we haven't met, my name is Matt, and I'm uh, stoked to be here with you guys today. I haven't taught in a few weeks, and so uh, excited to be back up here with you guys. Now, if you've got a Bible, um, go with me to the book of Romans, chapter 14. We're picking up where Rob uh, left off last week, and um, should I do my spiel? All right, the book of Romans. Yes, I'm going to do it. 36 weeks in a row now, I'm doing it. The book of Romans, its main theme is the... Righteousness of God, right? It's how you, and here's why the book of Romans is of utmost importance, right? It, it is an essential book um, in our faith. All, all six, six books of the, uh, of the Old and New Testament are, but the book of Romans really does stand alone because it has the most comprehensive uh, understanding of the gospel, the whole narrative, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. They can all be encompassed within the 16 chapters and 430 verses of the book of Romans. The book of Romans is um, called Paul's uh, Greatest Work. And uh, I've said this before, the reason that the book of Romans is such a, an important book is because it was written in such a way that it was the only book that you got your hands on that you could understand the, the, the idea of sin and your need of salvation, that the only person that can give you that is Jesus Christ. The word righteousness means to be in a right relationship with God and, and other people. And so we've learned over the weeks about righteousness and something called imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness means that what was true about Jesus, he was in a right standing with God, can be true about you, and the way it can be true about you is faith. Faith is the medium in which his righteousness is accredited into your account. So that's my 30-second, more than one-minute spiel about why the book of Romans is important. But before we hop into where we're headed today, here's a question I want you guys to turn and discuss. The question is this. Uh, what is one of your favorite things to do? Now, maybe go back to what was one of your favorite things to do when you were a kid, and do you still do that as an adult? Or maybe just in general, what's one of your favorite things to do? And I'm going to try to get the AC on because, my gosh. All right. You got one minute. Turn to Scott's ready, set, go. So uh, for me, um, it's pretty simple. Um, I, uh, I grew up doing this with my dad, and that is that uh, every night, um, or maybe a few times a week, four times a week or so, my dad, he would uh, he'd put all the tiki torches out. Raise your hand if, you're, if, you're, uh, if your dad's in the tiki torches and you have like your fire. All right, so uh, literally. And so he would have tiki torches, he'd light them all, and then um, he'd get one of those like Duraflame logs or whatever, you know? And then we'd put it in our little fire pit, and then every, every night or so, my dad and I, we'd sit out there. And there were two things that we could talk about growing up. It was, I could talk about life, something that was happening in my life, and I could talk about learnings. We could talk about life, and we could talk about learnings. Those are the only two things that we could talk about. And it was something I just remember from my childhood that I, that I really, really like. And as an adult, it's still one of my favorite things to do. Uh, my dad's no longer, you know, alive, but it's still something that I, I enjoy doing. And so at my house now, I bought this, like, little $30 fire pit. And uh, I got it, you know, in my backyard, and I got like a, a one or two hour little log that I'll put in there, and um, I'll light it on fire, and uh, it like smokes my entire backyard, but I'll, one day I'll, I'll graduate to a propane one. But um, one of my favorite things to do is just sit out there, whether it be by myself, and I just, you know, mindlessly stare into the, uh, into the flames of the fire. But um, if I get the fire started before my daughter Noelle, who's 21 months, if she, before she goes to bed, you know, I invite her to come out with me. And, uh, you know, she's wild, right? If you knew my daughter, she's me, but this tall. She's crazy, right? And so she got a lot of energy, and um, 
you know, I'll be honest with you, as enjoyable as it is having her there with me, it's not really that relaxing, partly because she's trying to climb into the fire pit, and when I grab her, she's angry, how dare you not allow me to roast myself like a marshmallow? Like, it's perplexing to me, right? As a dad, here's something I've learned about young kids, or maybe just mine. There's something about them that just makes them bolt towards their death, right? Like, I'll be, like, okay, if I were to, like, sit her down here, she'd probably just hang out with me. But the second we go to a parking lot, I don't know even how she knows what parking lots are. She tries to find the biggest, fastest truck and runs towards it. Like, I just don't understand it. Or this new thing she got into is she likes to grab forks and stick them in the outlets. That's a sure way to see Jesus. Like, what? I promise you that, like, if, if on the days in which I watch her, which are Monday and Fridays, those are like my full eight-hour days where I just get to hang out with her, um, and my wife goes to work, uh, 19 minutes, she's dead if, I don't, if I'm not constantly like, you know, like for sure under 20, 20 minutes, she's going to find something that's going to gonna kill her, right? But here's the answer, right? Why do, why do I, I, I invite my daughter out there? Why, why do I set up the fire and invite her to come out when, to be honest with you, it infringes upon my relaxation? And because you're smart, you know the answer, and that's because I love her. Because I love her, I'm willing to set aside some of my preferences to be with her and then spend some time with her, right? See, this is at the heart of what Rob was teaching last week. He's this idea that don't let your preferences get in the way of you being in a relationship with other believers. He said it this way, don't let disputable matters ruin your fellowship. I want to kind of go back a little bit, and I want, you to, I want to remind us that in Paul's day, there were Jews that were becoming followers of Christ, and then Gentiles becoming followers of Christ. So you got the Jews and the 625 laws of the, the Pentateuch and the Torah and the Old Testament, right? And then you got these, these Gentiles... Gentiles, non-Jewish people. If you're not Jewish or a Jewish lineage, you're a Gentile. And so they're trying to both come to Jesus, and, and Paul's trying to figure out a way for them to live amongst, these, uh, amongst each other. You have these people maybe coming from a pagan religion. They were worshiping um, the sun god or something like that. And then you have on this side the Jews and all their legalistic uh, uh, um, rules, like that they can't have interwoven fabrics and stuff like that. And so you got Jews growing up on one side, not, you know, I don't know, able to eat shellfish and eat bacon and wear Lululemon or something. And then on the other side, right, you have all these Gentiles who, like, loved eating bacon while wearing Lululemon, right? And so Paul's trying to figure out, how can I mesh these two groups of people together, right? So you can also imagine, though, that you had the Jews, the people that were following all their legalistic 625 laws, certain hair and whatever, and the yarmulkes and all that, and you would easily assume that they would think they were better than the, the new Jesus follower who has no Jewish background. And then on this side, you have the Gentile, and he's looking at the dude with the weird hair and weird beard and going like, you're just uptight and legalistic. And so chapter 14, uh, last week and this week, really is about how, how can these two groups of people live with each other? How can they welcome uh, uh, them into the same faith, knowing both of them are going to mature, maybe at different paces and things along those lines? So in short, Rob's message last week was to encourage us not to argue over trivial things with those who are still coming to understand the heart of the gospel, and in both cases, these people are. So this week, Paul's going to uh, kind of encourage us to be cautious of how we live, not to cause those that are still developing their faith to stumble away. So I'm going to create a fictitious character right now. If your name is Adam, I apologize. You'll see why. Adam um, is a recovering alcoholic, and he had just joined a small group who uh, goes out for a drink. Um, and you're like, oh, you're Adam, dude. Uh, uh, goes out for a drink, and, um, uh, and this small group, they frequently go out to drinks, let's say, on Thursday night after their life group meeting, after their rooted group, after their small group meeting. I don't know, because they love IPAs or whatever. So would it be wise or unwise for the leader, let's say the leader's name is James, and the leader of the group, would it be wise or unwise for James to continue this celebration, this practice, 
even though he knows Adam is now in his group and Adam has a history and a problem with alcohol? Now, the answer is it's not necessarily wrong. It's not sinful, and it's not necessarily right, but is it wise? That's the right question. And I think in this case, we would agree that in this case, James should make the decision that his group should probably not meet at a, uh, at a bar or, or celebrate at bars or go to the bars with his group because of Adam and his group. So this passage that we're going to go through and what we went over last week is actually written to people in circumstances similar to this. The godly thing to do in James and Adam's case would be to set aside some of their preferences in order to help another grow and not stumble in their faith because they love him. They want Adam to grow in faith, not, 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 not create circumstances and situations in which he may stumble. With that in the back of your minds, grab your Bibles. Go with me to the book of Romans chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, it's going to be up in the sky Bible. Don't worry. It says, says this, verse 8 and 9. By the way, we're doing a lot today. We're going from 8 all the way to 23, but I only got five pages of notes. Um, that'll still take us a while, but not the... 10 I normally have. So it says this, for if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. There's a lot here, but for the sake of time, let me just tell you this. Paul's point here is that from the beginning of your lives to the ends of your lives, it's all the Lord's. And furthermore, you will be judged by the Lord. Now, this judgment that God will cast upon you is not just for believers. It's actually a different type of judgment that he gives through believers. We'll talk about that in a second. Paul teaches us that in a second. But that all people, whether you believe in him or not, you will stand before God and give an account to him of your life one day. You will stand before God and be found guilty as you try to plead your case. Why well, did this, that, and the other thing? And you're going to be found wanting, is what the Bible says. I know your girlfriend or your mom said you're good enough. The Bible says you're not. I'm sorry. Sorry to break your heart, right? But the Bible says that, you know, you're not good enough. The Bible says, no, not one is good. And so you either are going to stand before God and be found guilty as you try to plead your own case, or you'll be found innocent as Jesus pleads your case on behalf of you. But those are the only two options for all the people. And that's what he's teaching us here, that you will be judged. Verse 10 says this. So why do you pass judgment on a brother? Why do you despise uh, your brother? So like I said, you can imagine that the Jewish convert, the dude following all the rules, not wearing Lululemon and eating crab cakes, that guy could found it really easy to judge the non-Christian, or the, I'm sorry, the non-Jewish Christian, like, you're not following all these laws, I'm better than you. And then you could say the person over here, we'll call him the free Christian or the new convert to Christianity, found it easy to show contempt regarding the Jewish people, thinking they're just a bunch of goody-two-shoe, annoying uh, know-it-alls, right? And so essentially, Paul's saying is, look, stop worrying about each other. You're going to have to worry about enough for both of you guys answering before Jesus one day. So you must approach all of this in humility. It continues in verse 10 and says this, for we all stand before the judgment seat of God. So we talked about this and I showed you some pictures of a place in um, Ephesus um, called the Bema or the Bema seat. Um, it's got better, more translation. Um, and the Bema seat or the Bema seat really is the equivalent to the judge's seat in the Olympic Games. And this is actually the image of what um, Paul is, would have conjured up in antiquity when the early writers or, or, or hearers of this would have heard this. So the Bema seat was a judge, judgment seat in the Olympic Games. It was an exalted altar or platform in which the judges of the Olympic game, and at that time there was like wrestling and like running. They didn't have spike ball or badminton or whatever yet. And so basically only a few sports. And after each of the games, the runners or so, they would come to the judges' seat and there they would receive their crown. First crown, second, third, fourth. That's where that whole concept came from. Likewise, what Paul is saying here is Christians will also be rewarded. Now, this is also important to know that the judgment seat of Christ in this case, different than the one in Revelation, is only concerned with a Christian's rewards and positions in his kingdom, not about your salvation. It has, let's say, no sociological significance, no importance to your salvation. 
The Bible in the book of Romans chapter 10, verse 8 and 9, we talked about this a handful of weeks ago, says you are saved by grace, oh, that's Ephesians. Um, if you confess in your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that God had risen him from the heart, that you will be, and the word is saved. And then elsewhere, Paul talks about being sealed and sanctified with the Holy Spirit. What this means is that um, all that's required of you to believe in Jesus Christ and have salvation is the confession that Jesus will be claimed to be, the recognition of your sin, and turn it over to him, right? So the judgment seat that you and I one day will stand before God Almighty has nothing to do with your salvation. If you in this room can make a confident assessment of your faith and say, I believe that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be and I've given my life over to him, you have zero to worry about your salvation and in your judgment day before God. This judgment seat, our Bema seat, has just to do with, will you hear, well done, good and faithful servant, because you did exactly what I asked for you. I gave you certain gifts and talents and time, treasures and other things like that. Did you do what I would have done if I were you in the circumstances? That's, that's what's happening here. Rewards things like that. Verse 11 and 12. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. And then each of us will give an account to him of himself. I wish I had more time to talk about this, but this is a pretty crazy reality to think about. Um, not my notes, but we'll go for it. Uh, Bible says every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Think of how, what a reality that is just for a moment. Now, for those of us that, that love Jesus, have an, an appreciation for him, we will bow in admiration because our king is here. But think of those, of those that you know that are atheists, that are antagonistic towards God. It says that every knee will bow, which means that they're forced, their bodies are contorted downwards in his presence out of sheer fear. The word uh, glory in scripture is synonymous with the word weight. And it's the idea that like when you're in God's presence, there's a weightiness about him. Glory, glory, glory. There's a, there's a, there's a weightiness about his presence. And we'll bow because our king's here. But their, they, their body contorts downwards like they're trying to squat more weight than their muscles can hold. They're contorted downwards. That's a pretty intense reality. But everyone, everyone will say that he is Lord. Now, this is actually, like I said, a quotation um, from Isaiah uh, 45, 23, if memory serves me correctly. And it emphasizes this fact that all people will have to stand before God in humility, that he really is the sovereign creator. Verse 13, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So uh, the key word there is stumbling block. As a young dad, um, I know all about these stumbling blocks in my house. I call them Legos. And um, if you are uh, walking barefoot at my house in the middle of the night when it's dark, you're basically taking your life in your own hands because they're everywhere. And uh, <laughs> but more, on a more serious note, what he's talking about here is like, look, don't, don't put a, a Lego, a stumbling block in another believer's way. Even if it's a preference of yours, if it's something that you can do that doesn't, doesn't infringe upon them, like drinking is a great example of this. I know a lot of young adults that like have a problem with drinking, but they're in a life group that has no problem doing it. And so they have to manage like, okay, well, I don't want to cause my, my, my brother or, or, or sister in the faith to stumble by having a beer or uh, a mojito or whatever, a four loco, whatever it is, um, a white claw, because that's, that's popular, um, whatever it is. Uh, RJ, you drink a bunch of those, huh? Um, White Claw? You're kind of a White Claw guy. Uh, <laughs> I knew it, dude. I freaking knew it. Um, no, right? So you have, to, you have to like, okay, I can't do something even if I'm in the presence. Now, is it, can, you, can you drink? Jesus didn't turn water into Gatorade. He turned it into wine, all right? So he like, can a Christian drink? Do you have the liberty to do so? And the answer is yes. There are a lot of Christians that think, I can't drink. They, they have, I don't know, how, what, what did Jesus turn, what was his first miracle? What, what did he turn into, right? In iced tea. Um, and so there's a lot of like, legality that a lot of Christians put on their faith, and they think that God's not strict enough, so we must be stricter. The Christian life is a life of liberty and freedom. 
right? No, it's, don't, it's not that you get to be buck wild and get crazy. The Bible says, be sober-minded, be vigilant for your enemy roars around like a lion, seeking for someone in whom to devour, First Peter, right? So there, 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 is, a, there is a reality, right, that like, you, have to, you can't get drunk and get crazy, right? But can you have a beer, a glass of this, that, and the other thing? Yeah, absolutely. But would it be unwise for you to do that in the presence of someone that is a fellow believer that you know actually struggles with alcohol? And the answer would be, you should probably bring back your preference there, right? So that's what he's talking about here. But let me give you another fictitious story, because I like creating crazy scenarios. Instead of Adam the alcoholic, let's create another scenario. We have Leonardo the luster, <laughs> right? And so uh, Leonardo the luster has just joined your small group, and you frequently meet at Venice Beach in the summer. Exactly. <laughs> probably not the best location for our boy Leo, right? Leo, right? So uh, the point is, don't do anything that would, that would infringe upon his development. Ask if it's not right or wrong, but is it wise? Because there is a lot of circumstances in your relationship with God that it's not right or wrong, but, it's not, but it may be unwise, right? So set yourself up for success. Now, um, go with me to verse 14 to 15. I know and persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it's unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your boy is grieved by what you eat, or your brother, you are no longer walking in love. But uh, what you eat, do not destroy the one whom Christ died. So Paul, as a Jew, tells other Christ-following Jews, look, it's important you understand this. There is nothing intrinsically evil about bacon, right, or whatever. You're free to eat bacon. Just don't eat bacon if it causes your brother in the faith to fall, or non-kosher meat, or whatever it is. Now, honestly, as I was reading this, I was kind of thinking, like, I don't know how eating bacon did this back then. Like, especially, can you imagine, like, being a Jewish person for the first time, and then, like, one of the early disciples was like, bro, your life's about to be changed, bro. Try this maple bar with bacon on it, right? And their whole life's flipped upside down. It absolutely just, you know, I don't know. I don't understand how this would cause them to stumble. Maybe they came gluttons because they're just throwing these things down like Tic Tacs. I don't know. This would have been, this would have been the best day of my life if I was Jewish, right? Your first slice of bacon, this is a game changer. But anyway, verse 16. Uh, so, don't let your, so do not let what you regard as good be spoken as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of, this is what the kingdom of God's about, a righteousness, being in a right relationship with God and others, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable God and proved by men. So that let us pursue what makes peace for mutual, highlight the word upbuilding. We're gonna talk about that in a second. But here's the idea. Never, never insist that your open-handed beliefs are so important to you you have to divide your church over them or your fellowship with other believers or, or separate from a brother or sister who does not believe exactly as you believe. Let me give you maybe two examples of how I've seen this happen. So number one, I've seen some Christians that won't go to a church who allow that church, students and kids, to believe in Santa Claus. Even more, um, decorate your house for Christmas or um, have a Christmas tree in your house or whatever it is. I think it's a pagan holiday, and I know the background behind that. But let me give you just a few details about St. Nicholas that you may not know. Number one, he was a real person. And two, he really loved Jesus Christ. Three, he was born in the third century in Turkey uh, to a very affluent and wealthy family, but his parents died when he was really young. So he took his large inheritance, even when he was a teenager, and started giving gifts to the poor. He died in December 6, 343 AD, weeks before a large pagan festival. And so what the Christians did in light of his story, in light of the actual story of Jesus Christ, because Jesus actually wasn't born in December 25th, just so you know, um, he was probably born in March or so, but anyways. Um, so they basically combined the, the Christmas narrative, the, the story of, of Jesus' birth in, in the book of Luke chapter 2, and uh, the story of St. Nicholas and gift-giving, and then blended them together, and now Christmas was born. But the idea here is, look, Christmas 
And Christmas trees and lights, they're an open-handed thing, not a closed hand. What's closed-handed? Closed-handed is uh, God exists within a Trinitarian nature, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You're saved by grace through faith alone, not by works, so let no man shall boast. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Um, that, uh, uh, that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, right? Um, there, there are things we hold in the closed hand that if we disagree with, you're not a Christian. This is why I love talking to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, because they disagree on the closed-hand things. But open-hand things are like, can we celebrate Halloween? Well, you're not a Christian because you, it's like, What? Or can we celebrate Christmas? Um, or another one was, um, can women be pastors? Look, I went to Bible school. I, I understand the, the egalitarian, complementarian arguments behind there, but they're open-hand issues. I know some pastors in some churches that say, well, you don't go to a real church because you've ordained a woman pastor or whatever it is. Those are open-handed issues. We remain uh, resolute on the closed-handed ones. They're open-hand ones, not closed-handed ones. Go to the next verse with me. It says this. Verse 20, do not forsake the food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Look, the point here is this, that the people of God are, I'll say this, but the people of God's family are always more important than your preferences. People over preference. Make it like a hat. People over preference, right? I can't tell you how many Christians come up to me and complain about church, our church, their church, or whatever it is, right? They'll be like, well, the music, I don't like you did that song, the, the style of worship. Like, you have lights and fog machines, like, Mer. why can't you have an organ and we can just all wear robes? Um, the style of the speaker and what he's wearing, the style of the person leading this worship. And all I hear, to be honest with you, is when I hear Christians complaining, well, I hear, I hear a nagging voice, but I also hear, uh, hi, my name is, and I'm a consumer, now, even worse than that, um, I hear that sound when you're at a restaurant, and uh, you have your drink, and it's just full of ice, and there's just that slurping sound, like, you know what I'm talking about? I just had some, uh, yeah, um, I was choked. Uh, you know that slurping sound, right? And uh, that, that's kind of, that's what I hear when I hear people complain about the church they go to, if, if they have orthodox things in the closed hand, and they're like, well, they don't have an organ up there, or the pastor reads from the NIV and not the ESV, or, or whatever it is, right? So... Here, I guess here's what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say. <laughs> I tried to word this in a crafty way so it was memorable. Stop trying to find a perfect church. Learn to worship a perfect God with imperfect people just like yourself. The perfect church does not exist this side of heaven. Now, in heaven, that'll be a perfect church. In fact, we won't even need to evangelize there, which is pretty wild. <laughs> but you're not going to find a perfect church here, I promise. Over the years, I've probably had, I don't know, 40, 50 employees that have come through the doors of here. And they leave to go to other churches, and then five years, two years, three years, they go and they leave that church to find another one because they think the grass is always greener. Look, we need to stop trying to find the perfect church, worship a perfect God with imperfect people who are just like ourselves, and do what God's asked of us, be faithful. One of my all-time favorite uh, stories happened when two of my faith heroes um, 150 years ago met each other. And two of my faith heroes are D.L. Moody um, and a man named Charles Spurgeon. And... Uh, D.L. Moody um, was a Bible teacher, scholar, pastor, uh, lived in the United States. Uh, Charles Spurgeon lived in England. I believe he died in France, if memory serves me correct. And uh, these are like really, really like, I don't know, heavy hitters in the Christian world now. But back then, Charles Spurgeon was famous. D.L. Moody was kind of beginning to become famous. And uh, D.L. Moody's faith hero was Charles Spurgeon. And he just wanted to meet him. He would buy his curriculum. You know, they didn't have MP4s and MP3s, so he couldn't listen to him. But he'd buy his sermons. In fact, I have all of Charles Spurgeon's sermons in my office. I bought his collection. And um, just really wanted to meet him. Was a faith hero of him. 
And so uh, there's this event that uh, Charles Spurgeon's doing in England, and somehow Deal Moody gets invited to speak at it. But before the event, a day early, he comes so he can just sit with Charles Spurgeon. He's amped. Finally going to meet his faith hero, right? So uh, he gets the opportunity, gets the, gets the address, and you know, put, pulls up MapQuest and finds the house, and he, and he knocks on the door to the house. The door opens, and would you believe it? It's Charles S. Or H. Spurgeon standing there, a faith hero of him. His heart is pumping. As he glances up to greet him and see his face, he knows that Charles Spurgeon has a fat cigar sticking out of his mouth. And before he wants to reach his hand out, the story goes, and he draw, drew his hand back, and all he said was, how can a man of God like you smoke a cigar like that? Without missing a beat, this is one of my favorite all-time stories in human history. Charles Spurgeon, because he's quick and witty, and D.L. Moody is a pretty big, big like, you know, heavy set, kind of look like a bowling ball guy, and uh, comes over, grabs him on the shoulder, rubs his tummy, and says, and how can a man of God, of God like this be like this? And then says this line that's savage. He says this, I'll put my, not, they didn't even know each other yet, by the way. He goes, I'll put my cigars down when you put down the fork. Oh my God. I'd just be like, all right, cool. See you later, dude. Uh, like that's savage. I, and then they became best friends after that. I think that is one of the best stories I've ever heard in my life. But here's the point of the story. Be careful the next time you take offense at another believer because you deem what they're doing or they're saying is wrong, sinful, or inappropriate when in fact they're just merely violating a personal subjective standard of yours. I've often realized with Christians, and now look, I'm not above this, that we set a lot of legalistic standards in church communities and to each other that aren't actually found in Scripture. Like we think like, God, like you made this too easy. Like, no, you need to be stricter on us. And then we become judge. I'm super good at becoming judge. I have a PhD in judging, right? Like, I'm, I'm, it's my highest degree, right? I'm real good at it. I didn't have to learn it, right? So uh, I think here's why this is all important and why I want to talk about tonight. It's important to understand that the church in totality, the whole church, is not about you. The Bible in itself, by the way, is not, not about you. Stop reading the Bible and saying, what, what does this mean to me, right? No one cares what it means to you, Becky, right? That no, that's... It's about what did the authors mean when they wrote it 2,000 years ago, and what was the Holy Spirit trying to inspire them to write to its original historical context and literary language, right? It's not about you. And by the way, you're never the hero of the story in Scripture. You're, you're not David. You're Goliath, who needs to be beheaded, right? You're not Jesus. You're Judas. That's who we are in the Scriptures, right? I want you to maybe think of it this way. Everything about the Christian faith underscores and highlights the reality that life, it's not about us, right? It's not about our preferences. It's not about us. And to that reality, our goal should really be to build others up. I think this world does a fantastic job at tearing us down, discouraging us, and a plethora of other things, right? And so let's be honest, and let's use God's word as a mirror like it was intended, not like a scope to start shooting and casting judgment at other people, right? So here's the question that all mature followers of Jesus should be asking each other in this room today. How can I build up others? When someone disagrees with you, you should ask, how can I build this person up? When someone at church gossips, is lying, spreading rumors about you, your question should be, how can I build this person up? When a person insert whatever the scenario is, how can I build this other person up? Go with me to verse 22 and 23, our last section here, and I'll get you guys into groups. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed, highlight the word blessed. We'll come back to it. Is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eat is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Here's what he's talking about. Give up your right to be right if it moves you out of a right relationship with a fellow believer. Give up your right to be right if it moves you out of a right relationship with a fellow believer. 
Next thing I want to talk about is this, and we'll end here. The word blessed. It's one of my favorite Greek words because it sounds Italian. Makarios. Sounds like a pizza place. And uh, what's the word makarios mean? It means it's going well for the one who is. You know, if you know any uh, of the sermon, uh, the, uh, the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, it always starts blessed, 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 and then it gives off this like, blessed is he who is poor. It's like, that's not, it's not written to Americans, but well, you know. But blessed, the word makarios, it's going well for the one who is. They are experiencing joy, they're, they're, the fulfillment, our happiness. So here is a, a reality that dawned on me as I was writing this. Not every Christian I know, I think, is happy, is experiencing a Makarios type of life. The John 10, the thief comes to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come to give life and I give it abundantly. And that's because I think there are things that God has individually asked each one of us to give up, but we go on approving in our lives and what the scriptures say here is they now condemn us. They, they hinder us from experiencing the abundance that God actually has for us. Now, it may not be that the thing in your life is clearly good or bad, but it's enough that God has spoken to you about a matter in your life, and it now has become an idol in your life. If you want to know what an idol is in your life, the thing that may be hindering you from growing in your faith, it's what you daydream about. What occupies your idle mind? Who occupies your idle mind? That really is what has captivated your heart. What have you daydream about most, Right? So each of us, I think we must be honest and ask this question. God, what is there in my life that's hindering a closer and deepening relationship with you? What's in my life that is hindering me? Not a stumbling block to other people, but what is my own stumbling block? Have I conformed to a pattern of this world? Romans 12, we're gonna, we talked about that a handful of weeks ago. I'm operating under a paradigm of success that's not biblical, so I'm enslaving myself to go to school for four years when who cares if it's five or six but I need to get that job because I think fulfillment is in the acquisition of materialism? Like, what's the thing that really is hindering you from a deepening, more fulfilling relationship with God? And then say, say things like, God, I want to know that happiness comes not from striving after things that you're trying to get my attention away from. And I think we'd be honest, this takes a lot of faith because we often cling to, and hind- uh, cling to things that we think are going to make us happy. And these may be the things that are actually hindering us from a deepening relationship with God in the first place. The truth is that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. It's constantly taking good things and making them God things, ultimately becoming bad things. That's what an idol is. It's something good in the world that we've turned into an ultimate thing, and now it's become a bad thing, right? And the human heart's constantly taking temporal things and making them ultimate things. Our reality is our hearts will deify anything that gives it a sense of significance, fulfillment, and security. And here's what I'm coming to learn and what I want to leave you guys on discussing your groups is this. I think many people in this room may be set free from sin but aren't living free. And you aren't living free because you haven't identified the enslaving idols of your heart. That's what the idea of makarios is, blessed. That's what he's talking about here. Identify these things that are hindering you. Give them over to God and you'll move into the abundance, the fulfilled, the fulfilled life that God actually has for you. And so that's what I want you guys to talk about in your groups today. I'm going to pray for you guys. I'll give you guys 20 or so minutes. Put your arm around somebody and let's pray. Father, today we thank you that you're a God that's present. You're a God that loves us. You're a God that has saved us. And um, Father, today we ask for your eyes and level of cognition, God, to see the things that are in our lives and in our walk and relationship with you that are actually inhibiting us from deepening and moving uh, more in obedience. So Father, we thank you. I ask that you continue to lead this time. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, hallelujah. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.